Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry, where we get to talk to folks who are building a more humane world from the inside out. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and my guest today is Jean Shinoda Bolin. Uh, coming to us via Zoom from Marin County, California. Hi, Jean. Are you there? Hi. Yes, I am. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I didn't know <laughs> what a treasure you were to the world <laughs> until I started just Googling you and looking at Wikipedia and whatever else. And my goodness. Uh, I think I've been missing you in my life. <laughs> I've been around quite a long time. Well, bless your heart. And and you've been doing wonderful things for uh, people are actually around the world. Uh, you have quite a, a following. But I wanted to start by saying <laughs> Zoom gives us this interesting uh, addition of having goddesses and gods uh, in our lap as we get to talk from home. I, I was uh, visited here a minute ago by Sophia, our, our little resident goddess cat. Oh, nifty. Goddess of wisdom. Yes. And I was on uh, a page looking at, at uh, things that you've been a part of. And I just after Sophia appeared here, I saw that you were giving a, a presentation and they had Spirit of Sophia was going to be present. So I, I thought synchronicity was at work again. <laughs> <laughs> it has been. That has been major word, especially now in this liminal in-between place when we don't know what's going to happen next, but we know we can't go back right. during this pandemic time. So liminal is, is it comes from the word threshold and we are in this threshold between what was and what will be and what we do in this place can make a real difference. I've heard a friend of mine call it the time of the parentheses. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so various words try to describe this, uh, this place of in-between. Right. Well, you're kind of a master of uh, in-between. You're a MD, psychiatrist, uh, Jungian analyst, uh, you've got the, the credits to go behind what you say. Would you like to just uh, go ahead and introduce yourself in your way? Because you, you think of yourself in ways that maybe the rest of us that just view you out here you know, wouldn't have any clue of. Well, I'm mostly known as a Jungian analyst, author, activist, troublemaker, <laughs> but, um, going way back to even high school, it's like some part of me speaks up. In fact, I, I, I'm recalling when I was a kid, I would say the the instinct that said, it's not fair. It's the same message that uh, has accompanied me all along. It helps me when I do individual work, which I still do. And when you say inside out, I thought that was a very interesting perspective because if ever the work is done inside out it is that I do it is through listening to people who are troubled 
and who have dreams about what's going on with them. So I listen to them, I listen to their dreams and reflect back to them what I am perceiving they are struggling with to find out what I think essentially we all need to find out, which is who we are and what we came here for. Good, good, I love it. <laughs> Obviously you have found out who you are and what you came here for. Feel like I'm carrying out my assignments. <laughs> <laughs> Could you share what time in your life journey that awareness really uh, came into a clear vision? Well, actually, I think I need to start with having been, I was in kindergarten when Pearl Harbor was bombed, and my ethnicity is Japanese American. Mm. And I was on the West Coast in Los Angeles, and I had, had a doctor mother and a businessman father, and my father was the activist who worked on, first of all, trying to protest the evacuation from the West Coast of all people of Japanese ethnicity were to be put in concentration camps. And he tried to fight against it, and then when that was obviously not gonna get anywhere, he worked towards getting us legally out of the state and into the rest of the country where we were free American citizens again. I mean, it's really weird to think that if you were of Japanese ancestry, you could come under martial law and have no citizenship rights. And then as soon as you left the martial law boundaries, you were again a free American citizen. So during the war, Second World War years, uh, we lived in a number of places from New York to Grand Junction, Colorado, to Blackford, Idaho, to Denver, and then back to, to, to California. And somewhere along the line, my own consciousness was aware that I would be entering new schools and I had to be aware that I was different and that I could be, you know, there's prejudice in this world. And I became aware that I had to be on guard about the prejudice that I could run into. But I'm not a very threatening person, actually. <laughs> and, and I wasn't as a kid. And also, I am a kind of an optimistic person. And, and consequently, I found I made friends all along the way. I did run into prejudice, of course. but it didn't, uh, it didn't mar me, but it made me aware. And so all my life as a, an adult as well, I could be acceptable to the mainstream, but I was different. And so the, the, there's a consciousness that has to do with, with being, when, when you don't, when, when, when uh, the word was positive marginality. I don't know if you've ever come across that word. No. But positive marginality means, I mean, when you're on the margins, it usually means that, you know, you're, you don't fit in, you're, you're, you're marginalized. But when it's positive marginality, you actually are acceptable, but you yourself know you're different from the group that accepts you. And so you develop a consciousness that sees things from two ways. And so I think that led a lot to my own growing consciousness and of course to become a psychiatrist is a certain is a sure way to become aware of differing consciousnesses well as you're talking i 
I'm reflecting that I had a very, some I'd say stable upbringing in some ways, but I felt what you just described, that I was acceptable, but that I felt different and right. sort of walked in two worlds or maybe three. <laughs> <laughs> now, why was that? I, I'm not sure. Uh, I was a number two son. My older brother didn't want me playing with his gang. He was three years older. Uh, it's hard to describe, uh, but I did a lot of uh, finding ways to play by myself out in the cemetery behind our house or out in the parkway across the street and uh, began to identify with a book that I had on the bookshelf called uh, Indians. <laughs> had pictures in it of beautiful stories and so on. So it's hard, it's really kind of hard to exactly say, but uh, it's been ever present with me. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how many people might share that same kind of uh, sense. I think uh, people who have been comfortable spending, in fact, very comfortable spending time by themselves, that the development of the, the inner life, the introverted side, the imagination, because you are playing with your imagination when you are out playing among the cemetery right. places things like that, or wherever you are. So it develops a perception that is your own. And then when you join the gang, you realize that you don't go along with everything that the guys are talking about and doing or whatever, that you have a separateness. And that is, in Jungian terms, you begin to individuate. You become a person in your own right that is not just going along with everybody or living out what your parents expected you to be or that sort of thing. And so much of the work of, of Inside Out has to do with people realizing that they made every effort, often a good effort, when they really fit in and to, to be who the parents wanted them to be, only it wasn't who they were also inside. And so around midlife especially, this is when people start to think in more Jungian terms about, well, who am I in terms of what really matters to me? I mean, so when you adjust well to what's expected of you, you don't start to, to differentiate yourself often until much later. I mean, if, you're, if you have difficulty from the very beginning fitting into your family expectations or something like that, then you start to be unhappy in ways that can lead to real problems for you, or it can lead to you being an individual in your own right. Thank you. You are a crone. Is that right? Well, you know, I wrote a book called Crones Don't Wind. And I had to use the word juicy to, to, <laughs> to put in front of the word crone, because otherwise, the thought is dried up old. And that doesn't strike a good chord. But but the juxtaposition of juicy and crone is an interesting one. It redefines the word that has been at one time very honored. Crone came from the word crown a long time ago. And in any culture in which an older woman, an elder, is, is looked up to, 
then a crone is a, an honorific, but it certainly isn't in American culture. And mm -hmm. so when I wrote uh, Crones Don't Wine, the, the reading line, the, the, it was how to be a juicy crone. And this goes back, you, you mentioned um, about reading it at, at some point that you were reading this book about Indians. But within the, the Native American tradition and going back to the Iroquois Confederacy and the Seneca Nations, the tribal group coalition that influenced the American Constitution with its checks and balances and with its, it, it directly influenced the framers of the Constitution. And there has been books written about that. And one of the things that, that they adopted, the Constitution adopted almost everything that was in the Iroquois Confederacy, like the, the, the differences between the states holding their autonomy and yet there being a central government and all of the things that are sort of an issue right now in our own governmental perspective. Uh, goes back to there, but the one thing that was left out, or two things were left out. One was that there was a, the, the Council of Wise Women Elders, or crones, that were elected, and they were to set the priorities for the tribes. Because they, had, they, had, they were by then grandmothers. They, they knew the men who were the leaders when they were younger, and, and, and they nominated, by the way, the council of men who would carry out and do the, the you know, what governments, they were really in charge of the governance. Mm -hmm. Now, what if wise women elders could decide who were our Congress people, who were, <laughs> we would have different people running our government. So I had appreciated that. The other thing that was different way back when, which wasn't so long ago historically, is that, uh, men and women were treated equally uh, in terms of of rights and in the in indigenous world and in our constitution women didn't have the right to vote which took uh, the 19th amendment to to make women equal politically at least with, when the vote was concern, concerned and was it also true that the uh, women actually were thought to have be the owners of the land and if there was property and so that it was passed down via the women is is the way i understood it uh, uh, i understood that the land did not belong to people well i understand i know that yes <laughs> i know that but um i'll have to go back and review Manual of a Peacemaker, uh, which is one of those. Oh, I remember that from well, a long time ago when I read it. Yes. Yeah, uh, and uh, in Jean Houston's Mystery Schools, uh, mm -hmm. there were occasions that she would focus on that oh. particular story. And uh, but that's been a few years, so <laughs> I'll go review. But to like the idea that that uh, there's an equal polarity and an equality between. Uh, Mother Earth and Father Sky, mm -hmm. so that that it, that that it was in balance. Now we are going through a pandemic. Now I truly feel uh, sheltered in place because I can look out at trees, and it's it's a much more introverted world. But for many people, the word lockdown 
feels like they are locked into small places with people and that they may have tensions with and all that. And so we are all struggling one way or another with this new experience of shelter in place. And it's in this this kind of place that we can find and listen to, we can actually spend time with our dreams, for example. Yes. And maybe get a connection with our deeper selves. Uh, I know that some people are taking advantage of that. I think there needs to be some kind of sensibility already for that type of going inward to realize that this could be an opportunity to do that. Well, it's happening in lots of different ways. Uh, That is happening if you can actually have time alone. Mm -hmm. And not everybody can in in while while being sheltered in place. But the other is how people are reconnecting with families who live in different parts of the world and with old friends who they went to college with or something that they can communicate on Zoom. And and on Zoom everybody's an equal. You see you know, you see each other's faces and then when somebody speaks up, it's highlighted. And there's this experience of equality. There's an experience of being connected. Now, this is the same as what I've been calling circles. And one of my major activism is to, to, to see how circles can change the world because you move from egalitarian circle uh, instead of power from the top telling everybody below what they're supposed to do. And this, whether it's mother earth father sky whether it's a circle and hierarchy there just need to be a tension between the two different principles and we don't have it in the western world the native americans apparently did uh, we tend to I, we we tend to idealize them at this point but the indigenous people have been holding on to some bit of real truth for eons while they have been marginalized a lot and it's at this point that we're starting to listen to the wisdom that underlies their traditions so in your i i did get the kindle version of your millionth circle is that what it's called right right and i got through that in a way of seeing that it was very focused on women's circles and maybe you could speak to how that is in many ways unique or or more what more constructive more advantageous than male female in the same circle or men having their circle how does that work in terms of your thinking well for one thing women do circles naturally and better than men do men from the time they enter kindergarten and first grade are often very much aware that uh, that there's a hierarchy uh gangs do hierarchy um and and it's only when men enter into a sense of an egalitarian relationship with women or with a particular woman uh do you have a a balance uh, between two gender uh, men and women each of whom has their own gifts and and both as a gender, but also as individuals. So when you try to, when, 
women have a, a much more natural uh, awareness of doing circles, so it's easier. Now, there has been a men's movement also that has used circles, and they had to get rid of the usual uh, need that men seem to have is who's alpha in this group? That's, that just seems to be one of the things that male people seem to have had inculcated into them. But, but once there's a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood, you don't have that anymore. So I'm thinking that, that when you have men and women who can do circle work, then it, it, we, we enter a different age of brotherhood, sisterhood, instead of uh, patriarchy with power over. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening as I'm thinking about all these Zoom circles that are happening all over is what happens when there isn't anybody really in charge who has all the answers? What if problems are solved within a group setting or a circle setting? Or of course, a person who knows more about something can put that something into the circle conversation. But that there's a real change in the culture when circle rather than hierarchy is the way people relate and, and problems are solved. So I wrote the Million Circle, How to Change Ourselves and the World, uh, with women's circles in mind. But the principle of it had to do with it growing out of the anti-nuclear activist movement, which reached critical mass tipping point. And back then, you know, people said, you're stupid if you think you can, you can influence the superpowers to stop the nuclear arms race. I mean, maybe you, you probably remember the anti-nuclear activist movement, right. mm-hmm. the storefront movements and things like that. And, and the last epidemic was the major film that started a lot of that going. Was Calderon one of the pe- women in that uh, movement? Do you remember? He was a pre. She she, she was one of the, the equivalents of the prophets that that then then spoke the words of truth about things, and then and then the film, the last epidemic, was was shown all over, and and that's when uh, I was influenced it through Vivian Verdon Rowe, who was somewhere in the Midwest, watched the last epidemic, was a school teacher, and she decided that, you know, that's the major issue that we have, that if, if we continue the nuclear uh, proliferation, we're gone, we're done. So she decided to make a commitment that this was the most important issue. And so she came to California, to Berkeley, and started a storefront thing. And the conversation evolved. She, she at some point along the way, uh, the the uh, director producer of the last epidemic, whose name I don't remember right now, um, called her up and heard that she was doing this, whatever she was doing, and encouraged her to do what she ended up doing, which was to start a documentary that I was in called Women for America for the World, and it was nominated for an Academy Award, and she and her partner, a man, had developed. Not only worked together in an egalitarian relationship, but they had a, they got a new puppy that, that, that they named Oscar. <laughs> so 
in the whole issue of, of here, Oscar, come here, Oscar. <laughs> and the playfulness of, of, of thinking that they actually might win an Oscar for this documentary, and they did. And so when they did win the, doc, the award, the Academy Award in the, in the documentary class, she also was able to say a few words about what the whole point of it was. And, and this sort of one person with a mission contributes to the whole of it. And change happens. And so my million circle grew out of the story that influenced all the anti-nuclear activists, which was called The Hundredth Monkey. You may, do you remember the story? The oh, I, I read it several times. I'm, I'm very well familiar with it. You can even find it uh, as a PDF on, uh, just Google it, and it, it just comes right up. Well, it sounded as if it were actual scientific observation. It actually was not. Mm-hmm. But basically, it was based on the premise that leads to real change, which is that when any species, in this case it was monkeys living on islands off of the, the, the shores of Japan, but it's when any species learns something new, it shifts into becoming like an instinct, and that's when tipping point and real change comes about. And I could see it when I reviewed the history of how we got, how women got the right to vote. There was a huge effort to, to get the right to vote, and it went from, I think, 1870 to 1919. And the women who struggled to get the right to vote, many of them were imprisoned. They were considered ridiculous. It was not easy to get for women to get the right to vote. And it passed by one state. I mean, all, if you're going to have a constitutional amendment, you have to get states to get behind it. And the, the last state to do that was decided by one vote. And it was the vote of a son of an activist mother who said to, who wrote a note to her son, do the right thing. <laughs> this is oh. what I heard. And he voted to support the women's right to vote. So, okay, so then women got the right to vote in 1919. I might come along, I think, but you know, what's the big deal? Haven't we always had the right to vote? Because this is what happens when everything is fought against, fought against, fought against, and then there's a shift. Suddenly that which was resisted becomes the new norm. And so based on women's circles, the idea from behind the book, The Million Circle, How to Change Ourselves in the World, is exactly that. That if there's enough circles of women, of women and men, of men who, who work within, well, the whole circle principle, then at some point, there will be a shift in our culture. And haven't we always treated men and women as equals? When that <laughs> happens, you know? And that may happen. As I watch the uh, television, and, and I'm amazed at how many women are that there are women governors and there are senators and you know whatever so the culture is changing because certainly in medicine there are a lot more women doctors in fact there are i think more women graduating from medical school these days than there are men Mm -hmm. and so you don't think it weird that you have women doctors haven't women always been doctors well no I'm thinking uh, of two things that, that you've uh, triggered in my mind. One is 
I became uh, aware of and participated in the Mankind Project of uh, a new warrior training adventure weekend uh, out there in Oregon, uh, by the way, right, right. back in 2002. And uh, such a powerful experience for me and, and observing the other men uh, in that very powerful experiences for them. And after a weekend, then you were supposed to be part of a sort of like a circle. Uh, they called mm -hmm. it an eye group. And you would meet regularly and, and uh, do that kind of processing. And then um, more recently, actually very recently, actually yesterday, <laughs> I was part of my first uh, compassionate listening circle. That, uh, a couple of uh, facilitators up in Seattle area uh, started. They had been on my radio show earlier in the month. and. Uh, so compassionate listening circles have been a, a male-female uh, training and joining. So those two things come to mind uh, in support of, of what you're talking about in terms of circles. That goes way back as well. Now, I'm trying to remember who was the author of the book that led to the formation of men's circles, men's groups. In the Robert world. Bly? Yes, Robert Bly. Mm -hmm. And and uh, they are, I believe, are continuing to operate. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. and I remember somewhere around the 20th anniversary of them, I I actually was invited to participate and say some speak to that group. Uh, that was a while back, mm -hmm. but there has been a gradual and stronger potential of there being men considering each other as brothers and talking about their own vulnerabilities, which women do naturally. In fact, there's a whole different culture that women begin to trust each other when they share their vulnerabilities. Men are trained not to personally share their vulnerabilities because they're, they're taken advantage of. They can talk to women, their particular close women, friends or, or partners, but to talk about vulnerabilities within a male group is to get turned upon. That was the old culture. I think things are shifting, but the basic culture is that, you know, there's a contempt for men who express feelings in so many, among so many men's sorts of cultures. Mm -hmm. And I remember back in the day when I was a resident in psychiatry and I had, um, as one rotation, to go out to San Quentin with other residents. And we worked with the, with the men who were about to, within a year of being discharged from prison. So they lived outside of the prison walls. And there were groups then to discuss what they were anticipating and all. And, and under the, that auspices, I learned that even a very young female resident made all the difference because if a woman were present, a, the men could talk about their concerns about how they were going to be. Uh, how the the women that they would be rejoining, how they would be treated, they talked about their heart issues, which they never would if there were if there were only men, including a male resident. But just being a female resident, and then I learned from my mentor, uh, who who had started the whole process there, that that was the issue that only when a woman was president present could men in this prison setting anyway talk about their concerns 
So I've been learning over time about the value of circle or groups. And I see it as a way in which people can make changes and really grow and share and affirm each other and have their back, you know? If you are gonna tr start something, speak up to your spouse, uh, speak to your boss, try something new, and you, you know, you're anxious about it. If you have a circle behind you who you've discussed it with and, and who know the process of, that you're about to encounter and know the, the fears you have, if you can have that kind of support, you can start making changes and know that people have your back. And because I also have a strong spiritual dimension in my own life, but also within the Carl Jung's work, there's the archetype of the self which is the, which ego knows something about or ignores, but the ego in relationship to the self, the self, we call, we can call it God or goddess or higher power or all that is, or the great mystery. Human beings have always had a sense there's something about divinity that really does exist. And they, then it got segued into, put into, oh, religious, pods or something and that each religion said we are the only one who, who has a direct access to this not not so so the 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 in, back to the indigenous people who have a sense of great mystery i think that's the best way to say it that we are part of history right now when we can connect with whatever great mystery is and and the planet and humanity depends upon what we do now and the coronavirus amazingly has altered history momentarily and giving us the opportunity to shift the direction we were going in. I hope there is more um, and more and more advantage taken of that in the direction that you're talking. Uh, it is an opportunity. Uh, I sometimes think that I'm so privileged in my uh, space that I'm in with my wife and our cats and and uh, retired and and you know I get uh, I'm not worried about a job and I'm not worried about food uh, so I I can almost just uh, oh well this is a great opportunity <laughs> but I just think of so many that don't have that uh, as you've spoken already today of, of the folks that just don't have that space to uh, to use it in that way but hey we're we're doing the best we can, I suppose, with what we have. Well, we're in a we're when I use the word liminal, meaning threshold. It's like we don't know what comes next. This is a time where, if fear and oppression dominates, then this opportunity will be one for dictators and oppressors really to take everything over and run the show. And people will say, "Great." The, you know, the decision will be made by the head honcho that we happen to have faith in and and we subordinate our own selves to that sense that the big person, usually male, uh, gets to run the show. And, and so we are at a point where more of that can happen or more of the grassroots uh, humanity rising efforts to look after one another and see, see. I mean, the coronavirus in one way has a potential of, while it, it clearly is wiping out the elders 
in nursing homes and the people who are impoverished and, and all that, there is the reality is that it's also cutting across all kinds of social areas. And the reason, one of the reasons for sheltering in place is because we all know until there is a vaccine, we could get it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very, very, very true. You spoke of archetypes there with your Jungian background. Could you just uh, give us a brief introduction to archetypes uh, that maybe all of our listening audience doesn't have? Well, the idea uh, behind archetypes is that we all share something called the collective unconscious. We don't come in with a total blank screen. We come in as everybody would gather. You know, you come in with certain human talents. And some people have a a great deal of artistic talent and some people have hardly any at all. And some people are athletic and other people are klutzes, but they're all human abilities and patterns. And the archetypes are are take in certain uh, personality traits and patterns. And we recognize them as archetypes because there aren't that many. And literature, you can track, certain characters and you can see patterns and and all so anyway the names that are most familiar in western culture happen to be the mythological characters so i had written goddesses in every woman for example based on the greek goddesses which are part of the mythology of getting a, a western education and what they do is they help to 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 classify people well in their gifts and their problems. So that not every woman is maternal, for example. That is a strong archetype in many women. If it's the, your primary archetype, then you're, you're, you're resembling Demeter, the mother archetype. And from the time you were little and you played with dolls and you imagined having children versus the uh, Artemis Athena archetypes, which are quite different. Athena is the armored goddess you know, who who thinks well and the best strategist on the battlefield. And Artemis is this independent, go-into-the-wilderness archetype that that has a natural sense of sisterhood. Athena doesn't have a sense of sisterhood. Artemis does. And when you look at an Artemis woman, uh, which is a personification of the feminist, so therefore I have a strong identity with, with Artemis, one is that she starts out almost as an archetypal Girl Scout because she would go to a, a camp and enjoy the out of doors and be independent. Uh, so there's an independence that is part of this archetype. Well, an Artemis who likes to uh, travel the world and learn new things and is curious is very different than a, than a Demeter who wants to be a mother and wants most of all to have children. So these are just a couple of archetypes, uh, but you can see they're very different. Very different. So then I, then, then I, I broke them into categories in Goddesses in Every Woman, and I told the stories about the goddesses, and you can identify with them because they are, they are archetypes. There are patterns. But the archetypes, you know, we recognize archetypes because they're built into us so that whether we're male or female, we know the male and female archetypes. They vary in us. So I also wrote Gods in Every Man, the powerful archetypes in men's lives. And in order to write them, both books, one, I had to, to get a sense of having a connection 
some I much stronger than others with what that pattern is like, male or female. Find the mythology that really describes them and then hold it up as a mirror to people to find out who they are. But while we identify with one archetype more than others, perhaps, I also say, listen, we're sort of like an internal committee. <laughs> we have different archetypes. I mean, they don't have to have names. So the inside of us, there, is, there could be, well, first of all, there's a parent and the, you know, what the parent has taught, taught us. And then, but, you know, what kind of child were you? And it's a, it's a way of finding out who you are that, that, that says, if you, are, if you have a, an archetype like this one, this is your gift, but this is, this is also the problem you have. And this is useful because mostly in, in psychiatry, the, the descriptions are kind of pathological. And, <laughs> and we're not. We have that and we have this. And right now, you know, to get into where we are now, you may remember when there was this huge, we are entering the age of Aquarius. You remember that? The, 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 Just the musical and everything. This is the age of Aquarius. Right. Well, the age of Aquarius, there does seem to be demarcations history, historically when there are shifts in what human beings are doing. And it doesn't happen immediately. So it's a 200-year phase. And when we enter the age of Aquarius, I could also say we are entering an age of brother, sister, brotherhood and sisterhood, that, that the the archetypes that are predominant at this particular time are interesting because it was Artemis who was the firstborn of twins and Apollo, and she's the goddess of the moon and, uh, and the archetype of the hunter and her brother, which makes them equal. Uh, but she helped midwife the twin into the world and that's Apollo, the god of the sun. And he is up in the sky and she's running around the earth and you know so there's the the idea that maybe we are entering an age a 200 year age where men and women could predominantly be in the egalitarian mode lots of good books uh, are pointing in that direction for the last uh, 40 years haven't they uh, yes yeah yes i think <laughs> steve martin might have uh immortalized that song as he was uh, playing the guy in Central Park that was high and that great comedy of, uh, what is it, Only in New York was his phrase. I, don't, I can't remember the name of the movie, but the age of Aquarius is, is still with us in terms of being promoted. Excellent. What about, though, us guys that we have people tell us, well, you need to work on your divine feminine more or, Oh, you are such a, you must have a strong divine feminine in you. Is this, is there sort of this uh, balance or could be balanced within even each individual? Well, this whole sense of divineness or divinity or God, goddess or whatever this is this is the archetype of the self, the largest self in Jungian terms, and it's it's what we humans have worshipped in one way or another since since in the period of the cavemen there were rituals. There seemed to be rituals and paintings on the wall that had meanings. 
we are the one species that comes in with a sense of spiritual religion, this whole idea of divine this or divine that. We seem to have a natural, again, this is archetypal, it's part of who we are. The idea that there's divinity in all in, in us, that we have a soul. As soon as you have a, a sense of soulfulness and soulness, you know that there's a that there's a part of you that that has it fits under the category of, of connection with divinity. Maybe that there's something in us, the soul, that is immortal in some kind of way, much as archetypes are. Now, how much personal it is and whether we live through many incarnations or whether this is our one incarnation, we don't know. But what we do know that that there is an affinity in us for ritual and worship and prayer and, and and a kind of deep reverence for a lot of things and when you have a sense of deep reverence you feel connected to a much bigger landscape that is spiritual and soulful to which we each can contribute to and what what i would like to ask is that two days ago i sent out my occasional e-newsletter and it can be found and it's called love in action on my website jeanboland.com and it was because i was moved by this poem and then went to look for and found two videotapes in which the poem was read and you saw empty streets the first one first of all the poem comes from the covid response team from belfast ireland and the images on the video that follows the the, the actual poem on, on my on my last uh, email uh, newsletter was this wonderful male voice with an Irish brogue showing us the empty streets of Belfast, showing us, and and in the end it says. When you go out and see the empty streets, the empty stadiums, the empty train platforms, don't say to yourself, it looks like the end of the world. What you are seeing is love in action. What you are seeing in that negative space is how much we do care for each other, for our grandparents, our parents, our brothers and sisters, for people we will never meet. People will lose their jobs over this. Some will lose their businesses and some will lose their lives. All the more reason to take a moment when you're out on your walk or on your way to the store or just watching the news to look into the emptiness and marvel at all of that love. Let it fill you and sustain you. It isn't the end of the world. It is the most remarkable act of global solidarity we may ever witness. Now that poem and then listening to other people read it, seeing pictures of Belfast, and then the second YouTube shows San Francisco and Oakland where I am empty and to to and and every time i read it and see those again uh, it touches me at a soul level and that's what i hope will happen during this 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 terrible time of pandemic that is also the potential time in which we may as humanity make it a, a difference now i remember when the astronauts went out in space and that was supposed to be the big deal, the whole technological business about going out in outer space. 
But what came back was the picture of our planet, the Earth, our mother, the Earth, from outer space. And she was beautiful. And that, was that can be transformative. So this is part of where my optimism comes from. It's because the effect on me of when we see things like the Earth from outer space, when we, we are touched at a soul level about how we are connected with each other in this planet in a way that we didn't realize before. So what is that thing behind me? Oh, you just brought it. Is it your planet? Did you put in a picture of the Earth that's, from outer space? That's, that's the Earth flag. And it's uh, it's been sort of my, uh, um, I've been its sidekick since about <laughs> 2002. Uh, huh. So I, I would always post one in my college classroom. I would, I've, I've done a peace vigil down at our post office once a week for about 17 years now uh, with my earth flag. And uh, so I, I really resonate with you bringing that up. <laughs> thank you. Oh, well, thank you, because you're reminding me of, you know, this is a net, there, there's something that moves people. And I, I, I think I would imagine that the people who listen to this program, especially those who listen to it regularly, know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> However, I also think that things go out and land in people's psyches because they synchronistically were receptive to it. <laughs> and, yes. and so I think that that's, that's, I call it sort of the dandelion phenomena, that you blow out the dandelion and most of it goes flowing out, who knows where, but every once in a while it lands on a fertile ground. <laughs> and so this is what I think your program may very well do. Well, that, that's a sweet picture. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jean, uh, you have such a wealth, and we have just a few minutes, uh, and people are experiencing this uh, time of uh, the threshold. Mm -hmm. So, would you just reflect again on some possible suggestions or ways that people can use this as an opportunity um, and uh, make the best use of it as an opportunity? Well, the best use of it can be to connect via Zoom and other platforms with people that you really do care about that you've been too busy to stay connected with. Mm -hmm. And this may mean also family members that you've been estranged from, but you can draw them all together and and connect with one another and 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 uh, and with old friends from various times of your life to, to have circles uh, I think some something that is sort of magical that happens in circle that the image is like it draws the archetypal energies of circle into even the zooms connections and that that every time we do something like this uh, we're contributing to the potential that out of this liminal uh, threshold between what was and what will be, that we can help tilt the direction we're going in. And, and I also think that for, for those of us who are privileged enough to not be jammed into close quarters, but have time for ourselves, that there's time to listen to your dreams, write them down, feel about them, think about them, go out 
in nature. And, you know, it's so different going at, watching people go out in nature and talk to each other and not notice or feel what it is about the trees. You know, my, my, I'm really saying in my work that the shift that could change the direction we are going into has to do with the feminine in men and women who, who connect at the level of this interconnectedness and trees. Because remember, the trees uh, breathe out the, the trees send out the oxygen we breathe and the, the carbon dioxide we breathe out goes into making the trees, uh, the carbon thing. And one of the things that will potentially happen is we could stop climate change if we, if we stop the pollution and we stop cutting down our rainforests and our trees. And, you know, I'm obviously optimistically saying that all of us have a role in the body of the humanity. We're, we're each a cell that is connected to everything else. That was a phrase that came to me in, uh, at the end of a book I read in 2001 by uh, L. Robert Keck. Bob Keck wrote Sacred Eyes. <laughs> and uh, the phrase that came to me, sort of giving me my place in the universe, was, I am a cell in the body of the universe nudging it with love toward evolution and not destruction. I love it. Well, it, it's been a meaningful guide for me since that day sitting out on the, the deck <laughs> and having that clarity. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Jean Shinoda Bolin. <laughs> <laughs> right. We find you. We find you on uh, jeanbolin.com. Right. And that's J-E-A-N-B-O-L-E-N.com. And if you look up newsletter, you can, you can read the poem and see the two videos. Right. I'm, I'm headed there as, uh, as soon as we uh, get done here. It sounds very inviting. What a wonderful time to spend with you and to get to know you. I, I deeply appreciate it. And uh, maybe we'll get to do it again. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see how the world turns. And how long we stay uh, sheltered in place. Which is our loving action. Love <laughs> right. Action. action. Thank you again, Jean. You're very welcome. Thank you. All the best. And to you, friends. Remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care and talk to you soon. From the COVID response team, Belfast, Northern Ireland. When you go out and see the empty streets, the empty stadiums, the empty train platforms, even the empty children's playgrounds, don't say to yourself, it looks like the end of the world. 
what you're seeing is love in action. What you're seeing in those empty spaces is how much we do care for each other, care for our grandparents, our parents, our brothers and sisters, for all those with their own health problems. We care for people we will never meet. People will lose jobs over this. Some will lose their businesses and some will lose their lives. This is all the more reason to take a moment when you're out on your walk or on your way to the store or just watching the news to look into the emptiness and marvel at all of that love. Let it fill you and let it sustain you. It isn't the end of the world. It is the most remarkable act of global solidarity we may ever witness in our lifetime. So stay safe in your house, stay at home, and God bless you all. From the COVID response team, Belfast, Northern Ireland.